Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Repetition can be a strange thing. Industrial production has made it normal to us that thousands, even millions of items, can be identically reproduced down to the nanometer. If you break your phone or if your car has problems, this is cause for relief, as parts or even the entire device will be seamlessly interchangeable. If, however, you live in a large apartment tower, in a suburb with ranch houses, or work among cubicles at an immersive scale that is larger than the manufactured goods themselves, seamless interchangeability becomes oppressive. The consequent monotony of office life provokes a well-known, almost universal human reaction where intimations of home or the individual in the form of pictures, small toys, and desk ornaments are assembled into a bricolage stamping so-and-so works here on the desk and tiny walls far more effectively and memorably than any nameplate would. Serial production only works well for certain things. One cannot truly reproduce a sense of home at the office, and when this is attempted, something very different, if not always unwanted, arises. This phenomenon is known as false shaping, or pseudomorphosis where something new that is formed under a predetermined pressure retains the outward characteristics of what it replaces while being truly distinct. The more one scales up complexity, the harder repetition becomes. One can reproduce neither a sense of home nor a civilization. Try as one might, one can't reproduce a government, or recover or even sustain the momentum of a counterculture or art movement when circumstances have fundamentally changed. Retro may sometimes agree with us, but retro is never the same. And the very fact that sincere effort is put into recapturing the older idea is part of what guarantees that this new thing will be distinct. Context provides a destiny that content can never escape, fight as it may. The main task of Expressionism had been to situate the artist as a conduit for an objective manifestation, the art, of something that would otherwise be ineffably subjective. As we saw last time, the Dadaists poured scorn on the Expressionists for wanting to continue the ideals of the pre-war era in the post-war context, even if those called for a modernist break with the past and the birth of a new human awareness. The main task of Expressionism had been to situate the artist as a conduit for an objective manifestation, the art, 
of something that would otherwise be ineffably subjective. Expressionism was no longer content to merely stand on the shoulders of giants. It wanted to leap from them into the stratosphere. Dada, on the other hand, was firmly grounded and all too eager to point out the inevitable consequences of flying up into the sun. The historical context of Kurt Schwitters, to whom we alluded at the end of the last episode, fell between the Empyrean heights of Expressionism and the bottom-dwelling habits of the Dadaists, patching together, as best he could, a parachute of sorts from the world around him. The greatest achievement of this crepuscular para-expressionism would be the Merzbau, his immersive sculptural collage, pictures of which are posted on lapsuslima.com. That they are not especially helpful by way of clearly representing anything only adds to their charm. Schwitters was born in Hanover in 1887. His early training began at the Hanoverian Kunstgewerbschule from 1908 to 1909. With doubtlessly high hopes, he set off to the Berlin Academy of Arts in 1911, and in the first real instance of what would become a haunting, yet never quite fatal pattern of setbacks, difficulties, and denials, he was expelled as untalented after the four-week probationary period. He found more of a home in Dresden's Royal Saxon Academy of Arts, where he seemed to be either unaware of or unmoved by the skinny-dipping bacchanals of the painters associated with Brücke, the premier expressionist organization in Germany. He did befriend fellow category shirker, the painter Otto Dix. In 1914, he and Dix were drafted, along with millions of that generation. 1915, the eye of that storm marks a special turning point for his art, not so much because he married his first cousin Helma, but because the newlyweds moved into a flat in number 5 Waldhausenstrasse, in his native Hanover which is where the first accretions of Merzbau would be assembled. By 1919, when the war had ended, Schwitters became a member of the Internationale Vereinigung von Expressionisten, Kubisten und Futuristen, or IVEKF, an international union and who's who of pretty much all the contemporary artists that Dada decried. He gained enough esteem to get his work shown in Dresden and also at the Galerie der Sturm in Berlin, a noted showplace for established expressionists. By 1920, he was regularly traveling to Berlin to perform his sonic tonal Dada poetry at the Expressionists' Gallery rather than a Dada cabaret, and remained in close contact with the Dada movement, despite having been denied official membership. Kurt Schwitters was nearly the same age as arch-Dadaist Raoul Hausmann, and like him, arrived on the art scene too late 
to ride the cresting wave of the expressionist counterculture. Schwitter's was, however, too close to the prior movement to be fully trusted by the radicals. Richard Hulsenbeck, a leading denizen of the cabaret Voltaire, convinced Haussmann and the others to exclude him. As a backhanded compliment, Hulsenbeck referred to Schwitter's as the Kaspar David Friedrich of the Dadaist Revolution, comparing him to the great Romantic painter who had favored the by then unfashionably bourgeois scenes of cloud-cloaked lonely mountaintops and whose renderings of icebergs were, like the tulpas of Tibetan Buddhists, wrought as fully imagined conjurings. But the twilight of a culture has a way of turning one man's reactionary into another man's prophet. Just a glance at the Merzbau's sweeping angles and eccentric forms while keeping even a passing familiarity with the last twenty years of architecture in mind reveals how this most personal of domestic expressions would be publicly echoed in outsized titanium near the close of the century. His concept of Merz, the personalized form of Dada that would drive much of Schwitter's career, was fully developed by 1921, when he published the eponymous first article on the subject in the first issue of Munich-based magazine Der Ararat intentionally or not, a periodical named after the mountain in which Noah's Ark was beached was an auspiciously named vessel for our artist's statement, who defined his concept as follows. Merz pictures are abstract works of art. The word Merz essentially denotes the combination of all conceivable materials, and in principle, the equal evaluation of all materials. It is unimportant if the material was already formed for some other purpose. The artist creates through the distribution of materials. The name was coined when Schwitters had been making collages and found a scrap of paper with the word commerce on it, as in commerce bank. He removed the com, liked the way that Merz looked and sounded, and ran with it. Many Merzbilder, 2D combinations of newspaper and magazine text and images would follow. There was a Merz magazine, and a 1921 double-date art tour with his wife, Hausmann, and Hannah Hoch to Prague, which they christened the Anti-Dada Merzreise. Despite these publicity-oriented endeavors, Schwitter's work in general, and the Merzbau in particular, retained an inward-facing cast. A pseudomorphosis was asserting itself. The older and outward form of expressionism, art as a transcendent and highly personal transfer of essence through the artist into the object 
and thence into the soul of the viewer, was actually containing something different and, though not invented by Schwitters, something new. His own definition and execution of Merz does still make it a highly individual expression, though. The concept's root in commerz had the com excised, its connotation to community or the plural removed. Since the removal of calm from compassion means to simply suffer alone, perhaps removing calm from commerce means to become an economy unto oneself. And that is the crux of the fascinating pseudo-shape that Schwitter's art presents to us. While he is still operating in the mode of expressionism, the artist is creating not through mysterious emotional alchemy, but by rearranging found materials. While in Expressionism the artist created through synthesis and from the spiritual, this newer cast of art was, in Schwitter's own words, an assemblage of the material. Merz Bau was a step beyond the Merz Bilder in many ways. The shift from two to three dimensions increased the intensity of time devoted to the project, the scale of the objects, and the impact it would have on the observer. Interestingly enough, it was also more private, even less calm, and more introspective. Six rooms within his Waldhausenstrasse 5A flat were completely reworked and transformed into a literal Merzbau house, the early stages of which emerged between 1923 and 1933. Piled on and then eventually cut up scraps of plaster, wood, paper, and other objects were mocked up at first horizontally, but vertical concatenations of assembled fragments eventually grew like stalactites from the ceilings to the foundations. Works by Dadaists Hannah Hirsch, Raoul Hausmann, Sophie Tauber, and others were interleaved within the installation. We're not sure how his wife felt about how he titled the work, but before 1933, Schwitters referred to his bricolaged domicile as the Cathedral of Erotic Misery. After the year of the Nazi coup, he ended up calling it simply Merzbau, probably more for politics than because of Mrs. Schwitters. These assemblages were carving out a personal grotto within the dawning hegemony of machine-age living in a way that anticipated the now-common sentiment that leads to obsessive cubicle ornament. It provided a prototypical riposte to the standards-based ideals of Hermann Mothesius. It placed the outward shape of the individualized expression that van de Velde prized upon an inversion of the modernist ideal of the home as a machine for living. 
rather than having the home as a background or a passive setting for domestic economic activity, the living space was itself the activity, continually reshaped by the artist and presenting shifting and distinct vistas from nearly any viewed angle. About a decade earlier, Loos had noted that the only intersections between art and architecture were the monument and the tomb. The Bauhaus had turned 180 degrees away from Loos's claim by seeking to integrate art into everyday life through refined commerce, the Werkbund's initial industrial design. In the Merzbau, an artist was quietly kicking back against both of these injunctions, perhaps monumentalizing his own house in the process. In a reactionary move against an industrial application of art that prized speed, repetition, mass orientation, prefabrication, and a sort of platonic idealism that strived for unchanging form, Schwitters amplified the use of handcraft. In stark contrast to modernism, this work was slow, fatally unique, intended primarily for personal consumption, in a constant state of flux and ultimately, tragically ephemeral. The Hanover construction was continually developed from 1923 until 1937, when the artist fled to Norway as he was informed that the Gestapo wanted to interview him. In 1943, an Allied bombing raid destroyed his original work the output of 14 years of continual transformation destroyed in a day, alongside dozens of other homes. The Sprengel Museum in Hanover has reconstructed, as much as possible, the original Merzbau from photographs, but the changing nature of the installation as it was lived in and developed can never be recaptured. The museum piece is, at best, a full-scale fossil cast of what was once a living environment, whose modifications were a kind of dialogue with the artist, his family, and friends. In the exile years before the erotic cathedral's destruction, Schwitters had hardly given up. A similar work had been developed in the garden of his house near Oslo, and he considered it nearly complete when he left Norway to reside in the UK in 1940, once again fleeing the now fjord-hungry Nazis. This Merzbau burnt down in 1951, and no known photos of it survive. The last Mertz environment to be built was at Elterwater in Cumbria, the heart of the Lake District in northwestern England. The Kasper David Friedrich of Dada was spending his final days in that favored haunt 
of the Romantic authors. This final work of Mertz remained unfinished at the time of the artist's death in 1948 at the age of 60. By virtue of fate more than anything else, this instance of art meeting architecture gleaned very much indeed a feel of both the monument and tomb, though in a very modern way, as it lacked the traditional permanence of either. Since the Merzbau was an early precedent of a dwelling space that was in direct opposition to nascent high modernism, it is no wonder that postmodern works of recent years have come to resemble it. When multiple people are doing the opposite of the same thing, similitude in the results is assured. Daniel Liebeskind, Zaha Hadid, and Frank Gehry, the starchitects whose most famous works tend to look like outsized piles of either broken glass or melted plastic, do, in a way, employ a combination of all conceivable materials in their aesthetic, if not their use of materials themselves. Yet again, the personalized narrative becomes our anathema in these newer structures, held up against a recent past of hegemonic standardization. Hadid derides right angles and wants her buildings to stand out as much as exceptional individuals do. Liebeskind starts with something very individualized, like a map of lines between the dwellings of Jewish families in Berlin, then morphs this image through a computer and expressively splays it on the jagged facade of his Jewish museum in Berlin. Frank Gehry's own house in California was a pink bungalow he began to slowly modify in 1977 using an assemblage of collected materials cobbled together, such as chain link and corrugated metal. Gary would later direct his workshop assistants to sculpt various test models out of curved pieces of the kind of cardboard one finds in dress shirt packages. Cutting, bending, and assembling, the birth of Bilbao's art museum generated tiny structures not unlike the hand-driven process that Schwitters used in the Merzbau. However, the facts of history mean that the resemblance connecting the Merzbau to postmodern architecture is merely an iteration in the genetic chain of pseudomorphosis. The cultural pressure that molded Schwitter's art was an outward form of expressionist transcendence within which a personal orchestration of assembled materials was carried out. It is always harder to diagnose the symptoms of recent history, but we will venture to provisionally classify these new, outsized, pseudo-Mertz constructions whose shapes have been poured into the vessel of an avant-garde obsession.
straining to both compete with the colorful achievements of modern art and struggling against the supposedly colorless artifacts of modern architecture. The eccentric external form of combine art and assemblage is faithfully amplified to enormous structures of titanium, concrete, glass, or fiberglass, but the inward dynamics behind them are quite distinct. These newer buildings are very ambitious, as they represent an attempted synthesis. Employing the computer's ability to enhance our mental facility, just as industrial process amplified our physical facility, the real estate market has been demanding memorable individuality, and these architects have been famously commoditizing it. Schwitter's work was part of a lineage of radical movements whose ability to reject the past and seemingly imitate nothing has now become fetishized. But the desire to conform to a non-conformist ideal is the veritable nut of the newer pseudomorphosis. Enabling this step is how the tools of industrial repetition have finally become sufficiently complex to, more easily than before, create stark individualities as the result of repeatable formula. What our contemporary phase of genetic development in the architectural general will has not yet brought into popular view is a system of repetition that does not stop at singular identity, but acknowledges the other in the form of context, urban environment, and the complex difficulties of people's simple needs and feelings. But just as combine assemblage as an artistic method took shape within the form of a pseudo-expressionist cathedral, the steps towards the resurgence of a living architecture faintly approach us. The architectural equivalent of celled organisms may just be germinating in the shadow of the eccentric, centrosymmetric amino acid-like outgrowths the postmodernists and post-postmodernists have given us. The prehistory of this organic undercurrent is something we will attend to in further episodes. Like so many liminal creatures, Schwitters was a diurnal character who thrived at dusk. Part of what makes him singular is how the energies of what came before him and what would come after combined in a way that even his extreme fellow artists remarked upon as odd. As the world caught up with what he was doing, his early rejections gave way to later successes, despite the apparent curses that fell upon the Merzbau. Our website has an image of what appears to be a 1925 handmade collage poster stating, Kurt Schwitter's Liest Märchen vor, 
Kirchfitters reads fairy tales aloud, and listing the address of his Waldhausenstrasse home. The Academy had rejected him as untalented, and Berlin Dada kept him, at first, at arm's length, but the Merzbau's niches welcomed eventual gifts from some of his most outstanding contemporaries, and a museum in Hanover enshrines a copy of his most complex work. By 1929, Schwitters was commissioned by Walter Grofius to design the graphic elements of plans and exhibition publications for the Dammerstock Siedlung, worker housing in Karlsruhe. The Siedlung architecture itself was very spare in the Licht, Luft und Sonne mode, light, air, and sunshine, keeping the smooth white walls of the row houses very minimal. Space had grown within modernist graphic design for Schwitters, but buildings that would adopt his manner of form, and in the case of the first Gary residence, his process, would be decades in the future. Schwitters was present at the Bauhaus's own great point of transition. In December of 1926, he participated in the opening ceremonies of the new Bauhaus in Dessau, which closed off the days of the colorful fabric and wood creations of the Expressionist-led Weimar era and gave leeway to the metallic dynamism of its more industrially-oriented late phase. An American-born German Expressionist painter named Lionel Feininger, who had been the first faculty member ever chosen for the Bauhaus, spent the Dessau years as a sort of professor emeritus. Once a driving ideological force within the school, he had provided the manifesto with its iconic frontispiece of a glittering, angular cathedral. Some short years later in Dessau, he still taught classes off and on and was, as ever, striving to understand how a regenerate visual art might be able to fill the outward shape that Bach's counterpuntal music had once graced Western culture with. Lionel Feininger and the Bauhaus's early expressionist pulse next time on Lapsus Lima. Thank you for listening.